Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your very good friends at Books of the Year. Your favourite podcast. It is your favourite one well, that comes now every week. With Which talks about books. Yes. Your favourite okay, book podcast with us two. Yes. Definitely. In fact, your only podcast about books yeah. that comes with us two. If you're a new listener, you're very welcome. If you've been with us for ages, welcome back. If you remember Robbie Williams appearing on this show. <laughs> you've been here for a while. You've been here a very, very... Uh, long time. When we told Robbie Williams bits that were in his own book that he had no recollection of. Yes. Brilliant. That's the way these things go yeah. with show business. <laughs> um, we're quite excited about this show because we like the book very much. We do. We yeah. like the author very much, who's never been on our podcast. No, before. he hasn't. No. Even though it's been an established number one podcast for a long time. <laughs> I'm just making this up. S.A. <laughs> uh, Cosby hasn't been with us before, but uh, he will be shortly. We're looking at a screen... It's blank at the moment. Yeah. Uh, an email from Lucy in East Dean in East Sussex. Simon and Matt. The sun is out finally and I found myself drawn to the beach to top up my tan, dip a toe in the water and read. Looking around at the rather busy beach in Eastbourne last weekend, I noticed that a lot of people were reading what I would call bonk busters. Oh, yeah. The Jackie Collins and the Jilly Coopers. That kind of thing. Has it always been the case that when the sun comes out, so do the saucy page turners? I was genuinely quite amazed and amused. Maybe it's just those smutty Eastbourne beachgoers. <laughs> yeah. But I'd be interested if you or any of your listeners have noticed bonkbusters on the beach. Thank you for all your great recommendations. Oh, thank you, Lucy. I haven't sat and read on a beach for a while. And I have to say, the kind of beaches that I go to, they don't, <laughs> they don't, read, they don't read that kind of thing. Because <laughs> they only have pebbles okay. and all right. biting North Sea winds. Oh, right. So okay. you basically, you the idea of sitting down and doing anything other than yeah. just walking briskly. Yeah. I mean, my, my instinct is that a bonk buster actually uh, is pretty much fits with uh, reading on a beach, given that... Particularly in Eastbourne. Yeah, particularly in Eastbourne. Well, given that quite a lot of people are in a state of undress, aren't they, on a, on a, on a beach? That sounds like the very worst kind of beach. Well, no, I mean the sort of, you know... You don't want to read the... a bonk buster when you're on the beach, <laughs> Well, no, I, I, think, I think it fits with that. I think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's never really been my thing. I'll be honest, but uh, I think you it. need if you're on a beach, you need a bleak oh, really? um, Icelandic <laughs> chiller or a book about a serial killer in America. Oh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so I have to say, Lucy, I mean, we'll, we'll see what other uh, listeners 
make of all that. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's news to me. Um, a message from Charlotte. Thanks for recommending Joanne Harris's new novel, Broken Light. I loved it. Uh, I've only ever read one Joanne Harris novel before, uh, but this was so good. I've now gone and ordered several of her books from my local library. Uh, she may well be becoming one of my new favourite authors. Absolutely loving the regularity of the pod, by the way. Keep it up. Very happy to accommodate Makes Charlotte. It sound like some kind of bowel movement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The pod has brought regularity <laughs> to my life. Bran Flakes. Um, so that's Charlotte Coombs in Lowestoft. Uh, and remember, if you want to get in touch with us, then email at any time. The address is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. We're on Twitter at Books of the Year, on Instagram at Pick Any Page, and hopefully top crime writer, award-winning crime writer S.A. Cosby is with us all the way from Virginia. Okay, so uh, let's let's get in touch uh, with S. A. Cosby, who is with us, I think on his phone, I think from Virginia, but I'm not sure. Hello, Sean. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? I'm actually in New York City. Oh, okay. And for some reason, uh, I have to use my phone because my computer doesn't like the New York Wi-Fi. Yeah. Okay. You sound magnificent, by the way. <laughs> you you sound yeah. like uh, you, it sounds as though you've been drinking the way Titus <laughs> Crown, your cop in this show, drinks towards the end of the book, and <laughs> you know, you've had like two hours sleep. Would that be right? Um. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get the difficult bit over with to start with, even before Matt describes the cover, and that is to say that we both think this is our favourite book of the year. Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I I truly appreciate that. Um, I don't know how to respond to that. I just I thank you so much for uh, those kind words. Okay, well, there you go. We just thought we'd tell you. But now the, now the cover, uh, the UK cover looks very different to the US cover. Because um, I, I was looking for your book the american cover has it got like a sun on on the front like a golden ball would that be right <laughs> yes it's a, it's a it's supposed to be a uh an autumn moon uh shining through the uh the branches of a of a willow tree yes right okay well in in, in complete contrast yeah the uk cover matt how would you describe yeah there's it? no sun here or indeed any moon <laughs> it is basically it is ominous that's what's um that's shouting out from this uh cover so the well a dark cloud takes up the entire top half of the front cover and then below that we have the silhouette of a tree with there's no leaves on that tree and a very desolate landscape behind it uh, with a little break in the clouds, but really it's all shouting out bad things are yes. about to happen. Uh, all the sinners bleed uh, in block red. Uh, New York Times bestselling author S.A. Cosby in white. And then the Daily Mail says, a voice as stark and distinctive as Elmore Leonard. Uh, the Times says, up there with the great artists of noir. It's just interesting that, that the American cover looks kind of optimistic <laughs> yeah. and the UK, yeah. UK cover looks bleak. Oh boy. I don't know if I would call the, the American cover optimistic but yeah the UK the UK cover definitely uh, transmits the idea that uh, things are, are not great here. Yes, <laughs> that's true. And and just just one other th quote, this is from the back cover from oh, yeah. 
uh, one of my favourite authors who's been on the pod a number of times, Michael Connolly, who says, and this is kind of all you need to know, S.A. Cosby is not only the future of crime fiction, but of any fiction where the words are strong, the characters are strong, and the story has a resonance that cuts right to the heart of the most important questions of our time. Boom. boom. And indeed, another boom, because <laughs> there you go. If Michael Connolly says that, then that's what you need to know. So, uh, Sean, tell us... Um, uh, hopefully you can hear us fine on your phone and you're sounding fine and dandy as far as we're concerned. Uh, tell us about Titus Crown, who is our uh, our hero here. Yes, thank you. And also, that was so kind for Mr. Connolly to say. I truly appreciate that. I'm still not over the, uh, the heady feeling of having people you grew up reading their books say such wonderful and, and supportive things. Um, I, it's one of the things I hope I never get used to. Yeah. Um, and so, so Titus Crown is a former uh, FBI agent who has returned to his home of hometown of Charon County, Virginia, a small little hamlet on the coast of the state. Uh, he ran for sheriff because he could not stand the way the sheriff department was treating all of the citizens of the town, but specifically the black citizens. He's a he's a black man himself and. Um, to the surprise of everybody, including himself, he won and he became sheriff. And as the book opens, he's coming up on his one-year anniversary. Um, things are going okay. Uh, they're not great, uh, as he says in the book. You know, um, the black citizens of Charon don't trust him because he's a cop, and some of the white citizens of Charon don't like him because he's a black cop. And so he's sort of this um, a pariah in many ways. And but then something awful happens uh, in the town and it's, it's up to Titus to sort of uh, stand in that gap and, and not avert his eyes when, when the darkness arises. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us something about Charon County? I've looked it up. I can't find it. So I'm imagining you, you've, you've invented Charon County because Charon is the, the ferryman of Hades in the Greek underworld. So, I mean, if ever there's a county that says <laughs> don't live here, it's Charon County. <laughs> Yeah, so first, so uh, for full disclosure, I make up all my towns because I'm terrible at geography and I'm very lazy. So <laughs> I make them all up. Right. So that way nobody can fact check me on where things are. Um, but also, I the book is sort of my attempt at a sort of Southern Gothic atmosphere. And in most American Southern Gothic novels, everything has a meaning, every name, every... Uh, 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 local custom. And so, you know, I intentionally named the county Charon County. Uh, you know, even Titus's name means forthright. And of course, crown means king. And so all those things are, are subtle attempts to create a certain type of atmosphere. But yeah, Charon's a, a terrible place. It's just, it's just awful. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the best thing. He's like the best thing in it. Can you just, um, as we go into the dark, and there's, you know, this this book goes to some very dark places as well. It starts with a, a shooting in a school, but there is just there is just one uh, casualty. Can you just take us into that that opening, um, yeah. which is so yeah, brilliantly definitely. described? Oh, thank you, thank you so much. So yeah, at the beginning of the book, Titus is sharing a cup of coffee with his father Albert, who he uh, came home originally to uh, take care of, but doesn't seem like he really needs that much. Uh, taken care of and so he gets a call from the dispatcher that has been a shooting at the local high school and when he arrives um amid the chaos and 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 uh and and, and horror um uh, he sees a, a former student 
of the high school. Uh, uh, a kid he knows, son of one of his uh, his own high school uh, classmates. And as he's trying to de-escalate the situation, um, the young man is, is, is shot and killed. And upon further investigation, they find out that he had just shot a beloved um, teacher. And so that's the only casualty of the shooting. And at first, Titus is just dealing with the horror of that. But then in, in pretty short order, he finds out that the young man who was murdered, who was also an African-American man, the teacher and a third mystery person were a trio of serial killers that had been using Sharon County as their dumping ground for, for untold years. And so he determines that he's going to try to catch this person, um, not just because it's, he's the sheriff and because that's what he's supposed to do, but because he has this deep sense of, of honor. You know, this is his town just as much as it is the... The, the local Confederate apologists who don't seem to care for him or the other local uh, citizens who seem to uh, have uh, sort of turned their back on him. And so uh, he begins this very harrowing journey into discovering who this third person is. While also, I think, hopefully, readers will see that he's also discovering things about himself. As, as Simon's already said, I, I absolutely adore this book, um, Sean, and uh, I... I... Uh, was I bought into it uh, instantly, and I think it was the writing, but it's also that that premise of, as you say, we begin with this school shooting, and you think, oh right, it's going to be that kind of book, and then s- almost immediately we realise, oh no, it's not. We're looking into uh, this beloved teacher who it quickly transpires is not quite so, uh, has not been behaving in the way that you would expect a beloved teacher to. And as you say, there is this video um, surfaces and we see uh, a figure dressed as a wolf and that, that becomes the drive behind the story. You've you've mentioned or you've just very quickly touched on um, the apologists for the Confederacy in in your answer there, Sean. And I just want to explore that more because uh, there was a there was a line that um, I underlined in pen as I was as I was reading, and it's on uh, on page thirty two where uh, basically there are some people in the in the town who want to have a parade around this Confederate statue that is in the centre of the town, and we have uh, our our hero basically says, "Granted, he would shed no tears if someone." Re- Reduced old rebel Joe to a pile of crushed pea gravel, but the Sons of the Confederacy parade was a grievance in search of a reason. And I thought that's such a great way of putting it—a grievance <laughs> in search of a reason. And I, 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 I just wanted to explore that a little, a little more with you about this because it, it is a pretty live issue in the states at the moment about these statues uh, put up to so-called heroes of the Confederacy of the South, and people saying, you know, we need to create, we need to. Re- respect our history without actually realizing what that history is. Yeah. As a, as a Southerner, as, as a black Southerner, I've always kind of been bemused by the idea of Confederate statues that, you know, they're the, they're the ultimate participation trophy, you know, it's like you, you got your butt kicked by Sherman and Grant, but he, he, here's a trophy for you to celebrate losing, I guess. Um, but in all seriousness, it, it is sort of this, uh, this idea that, the Confederacy, this this four-year rebellion in the United States to, you know, basically propagate the idea of owning people. Like, a lot of people in the United States like to argue, well, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. And it's like, yeah, states' rights to own people. Um, and so uh, I have one uh, in my hometown. In my very hometown, there is a statue that stands just outside the local courthouse. And even as a child, I knew what that meant. You know, that statue's not 
to celebrate these men and women who were fighting a rebellion, even if you think it wasn't about slavery. The people fighting the rebellion were pretty cool with having slaves. And so that statue standing outside the uh, courthouse area was to me always a subtle message to any person of color, not just black, but any marginalized person that you know you will not find an address a redress of, of grievances here. It's also interesting, and I think you touch on this in the book, that these statues did not go up directly after the Civil War. These statues were put up uh, sometimes almost in uh, when African-American soldiers were coming back from the First World War and also yeah. during the, the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So there was a clear yeah. reason for these statues being put up. Yeah, definitely, and 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 you know, as you touched on, a lot of these statues came were put up in in the nineteen in, in the early nineteen twenties, and then also during the civil rights movement, and and uh, it's obvious that they're clearly a message. What's fascinating about this, Sean, is that they said it's like a truism that people say history is written by the winners, and that is kind of true, except for the American Civil War, where mm-hmm. an awful lot of the history that we read about is written by the losers. It's written mm-hmm. by the South who are trying to rewrite history, which seems... To, and then, so there's a quote towards the end of the book where you say, I wrote this one down, there's no place more confused by its past or more terrified of the future than the South. It's, it's a fascinating approach that you're taking here. How come so much of the history of these times is written by the losers? I think it's because they... I, and, and, you know, just my opinion, I think when the war was over, there were certain people in the North who wanted sort of to have this reclamation moment, like, uh, let's move past this, 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 this awful event. But I think there was a lot of people in the North and the South who didn't want the losers to feel bad. They didn't like the fact that the newly freed slaves were entering society, were holding political off. You know, a lot of people don't know, and I don't know how many of your listeners may know, but immediately following the Civil War, uh, there was a lot of Black uh, former slaves who ran for Congress, who represented their state. And I think some of these people, both in, I'm just, you know, being honest, I think some of these white folks in the North and the South kind of looked at each other. Yeah, we just fought a war against each other. Yeah, I don't think I like that. I don't think I like that situation where uh, these black men and women are are sort of out outnumbering us and holding office and, build, and starting businesses. And so I think there was this sort of tacit agreement to uh, assuage the guilt of the rebels and and sort of bring them back into the fold. And by doing that, by bringing them back into the fold, they pushed everyone else out. Can you um, tell us a bit about, in in your book, In All the Sinners Bleed, Sean, your black, how does your black community there react to their black sheriff? Because it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating study. It's interesting because I think... If you ask me, if you ask me to ask Titus, let's say, I think he would say they really have the best intentions. That you know, the black community got behind him when he ran for sheriff. They supported him. He's the reason they he they're the reason he won. But I think once he became sheriff, they were under this impression that he would be their sheriff. And I use air quotes with there, and that he would represent their interests alone. And he can't. He's he's the sheriff of all of Cherry County, as he says at one point. Very much so in the way that when President Obama ran for office, there were segments of the black community that sort of had this idea of like, okay, we supported you. You're going to do the things, everything we want to do. You don't have to worry about governing the rest of the country. He's the president of the whole United States where he was at that time. And so for, for Titus, it is a deeply personal hurt 
that he feels that they feel that he's turned his back on them because he doesn't. And in many instances, he agrees with their issues, with their problems, with their concerns, but he is bound by that star on his chest that he, you know, as he tells the character at one point, he, he hates that statue. And if it was up to him, you know, he, he, he'd knock it over, but you know, as he says, sort of wistfully, the the sons of the Confederacy, which is the local uh, Confederate grievance to community, has the proper permits. They've used the law, and I think it goes to a larger issue about Titus that he really wants to meet out justice equally under the law. But in many instances, not just in America, but around the world, but specifically in the American South, um, the law isn't equal, and so it's hard to meet it out with any equanimity. Just as a sidebar, Sean, um, I I was listening to an interview the other day on another podcast, uh, which is called Unholy, and they were talking, and it covers Israel and and Jewish matters around the world, and they were interviewing a guy called Suleiman Mazwedi, who is the Palestinian, who is a Palestinian. He was born in East Jerusalem, and he's the political correspondent on Israeli public broadcasting television called Can News. So he's a Palestinian broadcasting on Israeli television. And his reaction and his conversation that he was having on this podcast is exactly the way Titus is looking at both sides of the community. He's sort of getting attacked for different reasons by both sides. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he feels that, you know, he's, you know, Titus, I think a lot of people have told me that he's such a strong, you know, stalwart character. Um, but he's also very human and he feels that pain specifically. He he literally ran for sheriff to make things better. Um, you know, historically in Sharon County, black people had been abused. There was corruption. There was uh, police overreach. And he really was trying everything he could to change things. And so when he feels like the community has sort of felt like he's turned his back on them, it hurts. It, it takes He takes that personally. And he talks to his father in the beginning of the book about it. Um, and so I think it's a complex issue for any uh, plus, pl- person in political power, but specifically black citizens who find themselves in, in a, you know, a role of a police officer or, or a mayor or even the president of the United States. It's this idea of you're sort of com- bound by this idea of equal justice under the law when the law itself is unequal. And I think it takes time for people to understand that and how they respond. Some people really try to change the system from within and other people leave the system maybe uh, ruefully with, a, with a, a little bit of a hardened heart. Um, Sean, you've, you've talked about how Titus as a sheriff is accepted by or, or is perceived by the the black community in this town. But I want to talk about how he's seen by the by the white community. And there is a passage that, again, I, under, I had to stop underlining passages in this book. It was so great because it was starting to look it started to look like I was marking the book. Uh, but it was it it, it so. Such a such a great um, passage, this one, where he says, um, for Ricky and Denver and their ilk, their fear was twofold. They feared him as a man and they feared the invincibility they thought the badge gave him. The idea that the invulnerability their grandfathers had used to brutalise people who looked like Titus could be turned against them was what had chastened them. So let's just explore that, explore why the, why the, the, the people in that, the, the, or certain people in the, in the white community in that town uh, view Titus the way they do. Yeah, I think that idea that I kind of try to articulate is a, is a, it's a, in a microcosm in Sharon. In America, as a macrocosm, it's a larger issue. You know, it's funny. I, I, so in America, there's an organization called the NRA, the National Rifleman Association. They're the most powerful uh, pro-gun lobby in the United States. But up till about the 60s, they were just 
a, you know, a, a sporting group. They were for guys who liked going, you know, grouse hunting and, and shooting clay pigeons and stuff like that. And when the civil rights movement started, more white people joined the NRA in them like few years than had in the 20 years or 40 years of his previous existence. And I think in, in the minds of some white Americans, you know, I, there's a great quote from a, a, a civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hamer, who said that, you know, be glad that we as black Americans want equality and not revenge. But there's this idea, that, and I think among some white people who feel like they think the revenge is coming, like a sword of Damocles hanging over their heads. And so they go by guns and they, they rile up their neighbors and they create groups like the, the, the Tea Party and the Proud Boys and, and all these things because they fear that they're under attack when really nobody wants to attack them. They just want to live their own lives. And um, they, they're preparing for a war that really isn't coming. And so in Charon, the citizens of Charon, when they see Titus in his badge and he, his hat and his, his aviator sunglasses that he wears, they're not seeing him as just a black sheriff. They're seeing him as that revenge that has been hanging over their heads since their great, great, great forefathers enslaved uh, people from Africa. And in Titus's mind, he doesn't want revenge. He just wants respect. He just wants to do the job that he was elected to do, but they can't see him that way. They totally see him as this uh, sort of uh, comeuppance made real and manifest in a physical way. Um, I'd like to just bring it back to the, to the, the serial killer in question uh, here, because it is a dark book and Titus has to go to some very dark places. And, and Matt has referred to the, uh, the film which Titus sees quite early on in the book where he realises what he's dealing with. And I was just wondering, Sean, how you decided to balance... So you, what you're talking about is undescribable. But mm -hmm. you... So you describe it barely. We kind of know what's going on, mm -hmm. but you don't tell us. Were you, was that a kind of a, a fine line that you were walking? Because I, for one, did not want to know... Mm -hmm. All yeah. the detail. I don't want to see what Titus saw, but I kind of yeah. I want to know enough. How much? How did you know what was enough? You know, it's interesting to ask that question because that scene was directly influenced by a TV show that I'm a I, I was a big fan of. So it's a TV show in America. I don't know if it was in the, in, in the UK. I'm sure it was, um, uh, but there was a TV show called True Detective season one. Yes. With Woody Harrelson and and and, uh, and uh, Matthew McConaughey. Yes. And the scene toward the end of the series where Matthew McConaughey has discovered this videotape of, of children being abused. So it, I'm, I'm trigger warning with that. It, it, he talks about this in the scene that children are being abused, and he uh, finds his his former partner. Uh, they were police officers at one point, Marty, and he tells Marty, "I need your help to take these people down." And he says, "But you got to watch this tape." you have to see what we're dealing with and so on the screen we don't see what marty and russ are seeing it's on the tv you can see the light flicker across woody harrelson's face and then there's a moment where woody harrelson's looking at it and then there's a moment where he starts crying and he puts his hand to his mouth and he, he's and he's calling out just oh god oh god and you never see what he sees but your mind creates this image and it's just it has to be the worst thing ever and so i did not i did not want to articulate what was going on on those tapes that titus saw the videotape and for the for the listeners titus finds uh, uh they 
the young man who killed the teacher said something to him during the confrontation before he was shot that piques his his investigative mind. And so he looks on the uh, dead teacher's phone and sees these horrible videotapes of the teacher, the student and the third person doing horrible things to uh, young, young, young black children. And for me, I didn't want to imagine that. I didn't want to describe it, but I wanted the reader to see the level of evil that Titus is up against because I really, I want him to be a great hero and for him to be a great hero, he has to face a great evil. The, the trial that your hero faces is in direct proportion to the triumph that they will eventually have. And so for me, this, it's just, that's the worst thing. It's the most evil, vile thing. And I wanted Titus to be the one to set that straight. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to be the one to even the scales. And so there's a scene in the book where his girlfriend uh, who was of uh, went to high school with Titus, who was a former student of this, you know, air quotes, beloved teacher, asked him, she's like, was it, you know, I heard you found bad stuff on the, Mr. Spearsman's phone. Was it bad? What was it? Was it, you know, and he doesn't tell her. He says, yeah, it was bad. But he has this moment of internal reflection where he says, you know, just imagine the worst thing you've ever seen, the worst thing anybody's ever seen. Now imagine it seven, ten times over. You know, and, and 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 he has that moment where he knows he'll never be the same. And also, uh, there's a scene where at right after he comes home from work that day, after seeing these terrible things, he's outside chopping wood uh, for a wood stove that he has in his home with, that he shares with his dad. And, you know, I think the reader will see he doesn't really need to chop that wood. He just needs to do something. And, you know, he has a moment where he breaks. Because uh, he's just told his officers, don't tell anybody what we saw, don't share this information, you know, to keep the, you know, the, the investigation Sarah saying. And then as he's chopping the wood, his dad comes up to him and he has a moment where he breaks. He doesn't cry, but he just tells his dad, you know, it was terrible, dad. They were killing kids they were, as he's chopping the wood. And that was a powerful moment for me to write because it shows you just how awful this weight that Titus is going to carry for the rest of life. And so, yeah, as a writer, it was a definitely a choice. I, I didn't want to go there, but I felt like the reader needs to know the stakes and it yeah. needs to know how deep the stakes are. I think I think you handled that um, perfectly, Sean, because like Simon, I was really nervous coming up to that point because I, I really, really did not want to see what was on that or have described to me what was on that tape. But I thought you, uh, but we needed to know it was bad. And um, and I, I think you handled it um, uh, brilliantly. Um, I want to ask uh, something you sort of mentioned in passing right at the start of this interview, Sean, I just want to take you back to because it's something that um, a British audience might find odd, but is is absolutely natural. For, for an American one, and that is this whole idea of the sheriff being elected. Uh, we don't have that in this country. I mean, we have sort of the equivalent, um, well, not the equivalent of a sheriff, but we have police commissioners who are elected. Mm -hmm. But those those commissioners aren't involved in investigating crimes. They're, they're, they're more of a sort of admin role. They're there to uh, hold the police um, service to account. But I, I guess I'm asking you to to dissect the whole the whole idea of having a sheriff who is elected. But the fact is, Titus needs to keep uh, communities on side if he wants to continue as a sheriff. And I just wanted to, to explore that with you. This whole idea that you're the person who is going to be investigating crimes, who's going to be uh, stopping you for speeding, who's going to be coming to your house to tell you that something dreadful has happened. That person is elected. Yeah, in, in America, sheriffs. So okay, so in America, it differs in 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 respect to where you are geographically. So in many areas, there is a police captain or police chief who uh, presides over a town. Then in America, 
the uh, uh, communities are broken up a lot of times by town and then within the town are counties that's usually in the more northern areas the more industrialized areas in the south where i'm from um we don't have a lot of mayors uh we a lot of times there's a town council and the, the chairman of the town council is sort of a de facto mayor uh, but in america sheriffs are elected and have they have any I, when i was doing research for this book i realized sheriffs have incredibly broad power in america uh when a sheriff is elected the only person in that county who can, you know, constitutionally arrest them is someone who's elected to a higher position. So it has to be either a mayor or in some areas, the most, the, the next highest elected official is the coroner, which I thought was hilarious. Um, um, and so obviously in practice, you know, the state police will come in and investigate. The state police is sort of like your, uh, they were Scotland Yard. Um, and so they'll come in and arrest a bad sheriff or whatever. But the sheriffs have broad powers. They can they maintain jails. They can arrest people. They can issue summons. Um, they can investigate crimes. Um, and yes, they are elected. And I do sort of see the, the, uh, the interesting dichotomy there that the same people who you will have to arrest and put their son or daughter in jail or, like you said, give them terrible, dreadful news, has to curry your vote. And so it makes for a very interesting uh, sort of political situation. But, in a, you know, I, I grew up in a county where the sheriff, my whole life was the same person. He just kept getting elected over and over again, you know, basically because the, he got the majority of people on his side. And he, I'm not going to say he was corrupt, but there definitely did seem to be certain families who got away with things in our area and certain families who didn't. And so uh, Titus doesn't want to follow that that model, but he learns rather quickly it's sort of difficult. It's sort of difficult being in a position where you are vulnerable to folks, uh, the same folks that you have to hold accountable. I thought it was it's a fascinating thing to research in America and, and, and see how much power America gave, quote unquote, peace officers. There, there were a, a number of moments, Sean, when I exclaimed out loud or s spoke to the book, which is always a sign yeah. of either madness or <laughs> the fact that I'm completely uh, engaged. And obviously a lot was to do with uh, the uh, the bad triumvirate of people who you have. But the other was, uh, so Titus has two girlfriends, an old one and a new one, and the old one is a podcaster and yeah. and says, right, I'm, I'm coming to your town. And I said out loud, oh, please don't. <laughs> she, she's just going to be trouble. Anyway, I thought that was fun. Yeah, I, I'll speak on that for a minute. So I did that. I wanted to show, you know, Titus has all these very admirable qualities, but I wanted to show again, like he's a human being. And one of his flaws is he's, he's, he has a girlfriend named Darlene, who's a local woman. He went to, like I said, they went to high school together. But when he went away and became an FBI agent, she stayed in town and helped her parents run a business. He comes back, they start, they take up together. And, you know, very early on, you realize maybe he's not as in love with her as she is with him. There's a, a, a small joke. There's, book doesn't have as much humor as my previous one but there's a small joke where he's talking about how she got him a very nice coffee maker for christmas and he got her sort of inexpensive bottle of champagne and he says if if if, if knowing your lover was an olympic sport then darlene had a gold medal and he barely <laughs> made a bronze and it's sort of this idea i think that you get after a while that titus is with darlene because he feel like he should be not because he really wants to be and so when you have a situation like situation like that to ramp up the tension, 
you bring in the former girlfriend who he broke up with under us, you know, sort of auspicious circumstances, who maybe he is still carrying a little torch for her. Because there's a scene where his dad tells him as he's talking to him, and he's like, Yeah, dad, you know, my ex, she's in town. Uh, and his dad tells him, He's like, You know, I hope your girlfriend doesn't see that look on your face when you're talking about your ex. His <laughs> dad is like, It's very obvious that you still have some unresolved feelings. But I, I did that because I wanted to show that Titus, for all his great qualities, is human. And he, he makes some mistakes in respect to that relationship or yeah. those relationships. And I, I thought that was interesting, sort of to give him that as his, uh, as his Achilles heel. Finally, Sean, just to give some people some kind of perspective as to how this book is, is, is considered, this was reviewed in the New York Times by Stephen King. So, you know, that's astonishing. Wow. And one of the things that Stephen King, who loved the book, um, I should say, but one of the things he says is that this is a book filled with carefully controlled anger. I imagine he's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a seething a uh, barely constrained rage that runs throughout the book. I think because I am, I'm not angry all the time. You know, I, I think there's a misconception about people uh, of, of black people who live in the South that you, you must be enraged every minute of every day. And it's like, nobody can live like that. Nobody can live in a sustained sense of, of aggrievement. But I do think there is uh, this sort of anger that lives in me because you know, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll be 50 this year. And it's like, things, there's always these moments in the South where it seems like we're we're moving forward. You know, the new South is coming. We're going to move forward hand in hand into a, a new era of brotherhood. And then, you know, neo-Nazism rises or, you know, the Klan makes a resurgence or, you know, Trumpism takes over people's minds. And, you know, I, I lost some friends during the, the, uh, the reign of, of of King Orange the Terrible, um, because um, you know there were people that I thought I was cool with and thought I was friendly with, who you know happened to be whites, guys and gals I went to school with, who fell for his his you know his 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 spiel hook line and sinker. And I remember thinking, what self respecting Southerner is going to fall in line with this rich, effete businessman from New York City and who's never known a hard day of work in his life. And what I had to come to grips with was that they didn't res they didn't fall in line because they thought he was going to be a great president or they really admired him. They fell in line because he gave voice to issues and aggrievements and angers and resentments that they'd always harbored. He made it okay for them to feel bitter. He made it okay for them to blame people of color, LGBTQ people, anyone who wasn't white for the problems of their life. And I think this is idea among some folks that, you know, you talk about the idea of white privilege in America. And you have people tell you, I ain't got no white privilege. I'm poor. I'm working a nine to five job. Where's my privilege? And I think there's this idea, I think, that they, they mistake the idea of success with privilege. Just because you're not successful doesn't mean you're not privilege it's like running a race you know um you can be given the best shoes you can be given a five minute head five second head start you know you can still lose but you had that head start and so I, for me it was very much anger but also sort of sadness and melancholy that it's like oh we took these two steps forward we elected a black president and now we're taking these five steps back and so this book was sort of me using Sharon again as a microcosm trying to process that trying to process that anger but also that sadness and uh i think titus is sort of my avatar there you know there's 
this frustration in him where he, he literally is just screaming at people sometimes, I'm trying to do the right thing. Won't you help me? And no one does, you know. One of my friends who's a writer, Jordan Harper, who's a great writer, uh, he, he said, uh, writing is like putting your character in a tree and then throwing rocks at him. And I felt that sometimes I was uh, I was hurling bricks at poor Titus, but it's, it's because he's a character, I think they can take it. S.A. Cosby has written All the Sinners Bleed. It's a fantastic book. It's our favorite book so far. Um, Sean, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it.